0: In the meantime, we're still in Advent. We're still leading up to Christmas, and so we're going to stay on that theme this morning. And uh, some of you may not know, but I can sometimes be controversial. It happens at times. Uh, I had a friend ask me a question uh, this last week or so, and it was, you know, it was about uh, salvation and salvation between faith traditions. You know, the gnarly questions that get asked at times, and. Uh, My answer uh, ruffled a little bit of feathers, I guess, Uh, but uh, he was questioning, obviously, my orthodoxy, but he was also interested in making sure that we didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, and by that baby, he meant Jesus. We don't throw Jesus out with the bathwater, and that's a perfectly good point. In fact, I thought it was ironic that that would sort of get leveled at me because I've spent the last 30 years trying as hard as I can to keep Jesus absolutely front and center in my life, front and center and true north in everything that I do. That has been an absolute concern of mine. I love Jesus. I absolutely love Jesus. I love everything about Jesus. And the more I get to know him, either through study or through experience in life, the more that I love him. It's just I've been amazing. It's been a long road to get here, to get to this place, to get to this kind of love that I feel. (laughs) And I suppose you could say that Jesus and I had to get a few things straight um, before that could actually happen. Actually, I had to get a few things straight, and that took a while. And even though I remember loving him as a child, because I grew up Catholic, and of course he was presented to me, I remember loving and being especially connected to the baby Jesus as a kid. That bleeding man on the cross, not so much. That didn't have a real connection for me. And in the Catholic Church, there is a bleeding man on the cross, just so you know that some of you have been raised in the Protestant branches, but the baby Jesus, that was something that really connected with me. Now I understood mentally why I was supposed to love that bleeding man on the cross, but he remained distant to me. I'm not like the baby. And the older I got, you know, I got busy like everybody else, and Jesus seemed less and less relevant as I went forward. And I kind of fell out of love. I stopped connecting with him. I stopped seeing him as the true north or the center of my life and my choices because he just didn't seem relevant anymore. What I had learned as a child was kind of left behind in the childland because that's the way it was taught to me. It hadn't grown with me. My faith hadn't grown up with me. But then as I got even older, and I got mugged by life, suddenly Jesus seemed relevant again. He, seemed, he was someone I wanted to know again, someone I needed desperately to love. And my head got in the way. Everything that I was thinking about, all the yeah buts and all the questions about this and about that, that ultimately had nothing to do with Jesus, that was in the way. And I was absolutely desperate to be saved, My life was in turmoil, it was unmanageable, I was in pain, I wanted the pain to stop, I wanted to be saved then and there, and I wanted to be saved ultimately. And that got in the way too. I was trying to do all this through the church, through the funnel of the church, doing everything that the church told me to do so that I could be sure that I was being saved, that everything was right, that I got the math all correct. And that got in the way as well. But as I started to allow Jesus to come into day-to-day moments as I allowed his presence, as I understood it, to become part of the decision-making process, to be part of just the relationships and the moments. My desperation started to ease and my death grip on intellectual understanding started to ease. And that was the beginning of everything as I was able to start to experience life through his eyes, everything started to change. In other words, as soon as I wasn't looking to get something or see what I expected to see, there he was. Jesus was right there, hiding in plain sight, always there, always had been there. And I began to fall back in love with him. It's interesting that this time, as I was falling in love with him, it was with the whole person. It was with the child, but it was also with the man, and it was also with the bleeding man. It really wasn't until I was ready to leave Jesus entirely that I became entirely ready to see him for the first time, to see who he really was, absent all the stuff that had colored him from my youth, from my childhood, through all the teaching and through all of the imaginings of who he was, when that finally cleared out, I was able to see him. I had to sell everything, everything that I thought I owned, everything that I thought I knew, everything that I was clinging to for support. I had to let go of everything that I thought had value and actually become a child again, to hit that beginner's mind again. In other words, to become anavim, again and we talked about this in the last few weeks the centrality of the concept of anavim to the hebrews that really when you look at it everything old and new testament are keyed to this concept of the person who is poor and lowly and marginalized but has internalized that standing has internalized that relationship not resentful not bitter but now realizes that he or she has to be wholly reliant on God because there is no other means of support. And that place of dependence, that place of vulnerability makes everything a free gift, everything a gift that you couldn't give yourself. And gratitude becomes the absolute characteristic of such a life. This idea of anavim all comes back to anavim. I had to become anavim. I had to let go of everything that I thought I had. And especially the mental. I had to let go of that before I could finally see Jesus from three feet off the ground. If we want to see Jesus, we got to get three feet off the ground because that's where Jesus lives. Truthfully, that's where our God lives. And we don't like to think about that. It's just kind of mind-blowing. The king of the universe is also three feet off the ground. The king of the universe has the attitude of poverty, even though he's rich. That is what kingdom is all about. See, now we think, okay, if, if, uh, if I give up everything I have, if I become anavim, kind of like a kid, when we were kids, we had to give up candy for Lent. I don't know if any of you had to do that, but we did. You know, then we get some kind of reward. God will reward us with kingdom. But see, it's so much more fundamental than that. God doesn't give us kingdom. I guess, in a sense, God has already given us kingdom. There's nothing more that he can give than he already has. Salvation, he can't give us any more than he already has. That position is already ours. But we can only see the gift. We can only see the grace of God from three feet off the ground. You know those signs when you were kids, you went to the theme park, you must be this tall to ride? Yeah. The sign the kingdom is, you must be this short to ride. (laughs) That's just the way it works. It's not that God is withholding anything, ever. Because it's even more fundamental than that. The attitude from three feet off the ground is the experience of kingdom. There's no other. Stark, raving honesty was the way that the uh, AA book, defines humility. Stark, raving honesty that allows us to see that we are all the same, that we are all connected, that we are all vulnerable dependents on our God. We are all anavim. That's what we were born to be. That's what we live as. That's what we continue to be. Can we get comfortable in that space? Can we lean in and accept that that is our human condition? That's who we are as God's children. And it's a beautiful thing. Unless our mind gets in the way and says that that is less than we are supposed to be. Unless we have that God complex. What did Satan say? It's better to rule in hell than serve in heaven. If that gets in the way, the pride factor gets in the way, then yes, anavim is going to be a perpetually miserable condition. But Jesus is saying when you lean into it, when you allow it to be fully permeating who you are, Everything changes. Jesus was born anavim, physically anavim. He was poor. He was born abjectly poor, unnoticed, off to the side. But he became completely anavim internally, completely one with the Father in that wilderness experience that the scriptures tell us about. And then coming back from that, understanding his place, understanding his relationship to Father, that he and the Father were one. He spent the rest of his life showing us how to become anavim ourselves. How do we do it? Now, his early followers were all anavim. They were anavim physically, right? It was always a marginalized, it was always a poor that followed Jesus. But isn't that always the case? Anyone who is ripe for change is going to be anavim internally or externally. They're going to see that they have something that they need from somebody else, a gift that they can't give themselves. Those are the ones who are at the precipice. Those are the ones who are able to change. Jesus didn't attract crowds from the elite They were only there to test him and find out about his orthodoxy, to see how they could maybe incorporate them into their power base. They weren't there to be changed. They were there to establish the status quo and make it stronger. But Jesus' first followers were that anavim. But not only, there were a handful, there were a few that were also rich and powerful, but had the heart of anavim at the same time the attitude of poverty, even if you're rich. Jesus told us it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. In other words, for a person who sees themselves as rich, who relies on that power, that wealth, that prestige, someone like that, so hard to be able to go and see life from three feet off the ground and experience kingdom. Not impossible, but very difficult. That handful of people that followed Jesus, that had the heart of the Anavim, those are the ones that we need to focus on, because whether you think so or not, we're rich. Living in this country, we are rich. We are the ones that it's going to be harder to go through the eye of a needle. We don't think of ourselves that way, but that's exactly it. We have so many things to cling to, so many things to accrue to ourselves, to give the illusion of security, the illusion of control. That is what we rely on. Very difficult for us to push back from that, to let it go, and to find the space that Jesus is talking about, even when we think we have. Which brings us right back to the baby Jesus, doesn't it? My first love. How in the world would anyone see in that poor, dirt poor baby, in a stable, all that Jesus was? How in the world does that even happen? And yet, the Magi did, didn't they? The Magi did. Their genius was to recognize Jesus, to see him from three feet off the ground in this unformed state where there were no cues or clues to the greatness that was in him, but they were able to see that. How did they do that? That should be our question. How did these rich and powerful men that. We don't know much about the Magi. In fact, they only appear in one gospel. Did you know that? There's only one place in all the four gospels, and it's just in Matthew, and it's just in verse two, or chapter two, starting right at verse one. Let's read that. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews?" For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Big news when you're talking to the king, right? Wow. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, I'll bet, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, shall, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report him to me, so that I too may come and worship him. My, what large teeth you have, Grandma, right? After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which, had the, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. That's it. That's all we know of the Magi. Not many details there. We always want more, don't we? We want to try to fill in the blanks. But what do we know? First of all, they're not kings. Second of all, there wasn't three. At least it doesn't say there were. So right off the bat, we three kings of Orient are all fake news. Sorry. We don't know that they're kings. We don't know that they are three the assumption has been that there were three because there were three gifts, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And there is, you know, Caspar and Balthasar and, and the names of the, of the traditional three. And they have been said they came from the three different continents, from Asia and from Europe and from Africa. But we don't know. This is all tradition. This, that's all we get in the scripture. Only here, only in this gospel. You know? Very little detail. What we do know about magi is that they were from Babylon. They were from the east, from Babylon and from Persia. By this time, by, by the time Jesus was born, it would actually be Parthia. The Parthians had defeated the Persians, and they had established their empire, which was in conflict with Rome. Rome was pushing east, and the Parthians were pushing back, but they were all centered in what today is now Iran. This is what was Babylon in the early days. This is where the Jews were exiled to. These magi were priests, they were magistrates, they were astronomers, they were scientists. They were the most learned in their class. They were advisors to the king, very powerful men. Daniel was probably a magi. If you remember Jan- Daniel during the exile, he became the advisor to the king. He was also some, a seer, someone who could see things and uh, give the king the kind of advice that he could never give himself. And it's even possible that these Magi were descendants of those Jews. Not all the Jews came back to Israel after the exile was over. Many of them stayed and continued to live there. It's possible, and I like to think that's true. It gives a certain closure to the whole story. If the Magi were descendants of Daniel and the and the Jews who were in exile. So if you want to try to understand a Magi, think as a combination of a cabinet secretary, right? A scientist, a religious leader, and a prophet, an astronomer. Actually, in those days, astronomy and astrology were one and the same, and so astrology was huge, and it was all part of this. And yet, even with all their power and prestige, all of their knowledge, all of their lifelong years of study, they were also, these magi, were also truly wise. How was that? They spent their whole lifetime studying and preparing to see the truth in the stars, looking to the stars as they believed, to give the cues and the clues as to what was happening on earth. The star of Bethlehem was probably and most likely not a celestial event, but an astrological alignment. And I know astrology for many of us is occult and is evil, but in the ancients it wasn't practiced the way it's practiced now. It wasn't about personal horoscopes. But it was, as Genesis says, that the the lights in the sky and the seasons were to show us things about what was going on. And between 4 and 5 B.C., even though there is nothing about any sort of celestial event that would be as spectacular as the star would have been to lead them all the way, from Parthia, Persia. There was an absolute astrological fireworks display between four and five BCE that all centered in Judea. And so we know that, we know about the symbolism, we know how that works. Plus, none of the king, the kings or the king's men knew anything about it. If there was some big light in the sky, they would have known about it, the people would have known about it. Something invisible, something hidden. See how we keep coming back to these themes? something hidden, something small, that then grows to huge proportions. Here is another event, this star, hidden to everyone except those who are prepared to see, who are prepared to follow. And yet for all of their sophistication, these men also were willing to set off on a journey that had no destination that they were aware of. They knew vaguely where it was, but they didn't know where it was exactly. It was a dangerous journey. The frontier that they had to cross between Parthia and Rome was a dangerous place and they had to traverse that. It would have taken them possibly months to get there by caravan. They had to be willing to be wrong. They had to be willing to look ridiculous in the eyes of their peers if they set off and did all of this work and then ended up empty handed. They had to stop and ask for directions. What man do you know that does that? They were willing to let people know about the limits of their knowledge and ask for help. All of this together shows us that despite their status, these men managed to retain humility, a sense of vulnerability, dependence, and a childlike quality. In other words, for all of their status, power, and knowledge, these men were still Anavim. It's amazing that they could have retained that quality with everything that they had at their disposal. Anavim. The only eyes that could possibly see Jesus, who he was. Think about it Mary, Joseph, shepherds. And Magi, that was who was there at the beginning. That was who recognized who Jesus was. Completely unformed, unheralded, hidden, small, helpless. Yet they still recognized and understood. 1,200 years later, there was another rich man who found his Anavim heart who recognized Jesus in the medieval church. He's someone that I know you know by name, but it's so important for us to get more examples of how this works, how people who are rich are able to find that space. This man wanted to immerse himself in the experience of the Magi, in the experience of that first Christmas. And Francis of Assisi petitioned Pope Honorius Third to set up a nativity scene for the first time. They don't even realize Francis of Assisi was the first one to set up a nativity scene. Actually, for him, it was more of a nativity play. But he got the uh, the okay from the Pope. Imagine even having to do that to set up a nativity scene. But in uh, 1223, yeah, the Pope ran the world back, back then. He got the okay, and in the little village of Greccio he set up a full-sized nativity, full-sized stable, real oxen, real donkeys, people. And so it, again, it was kind of like a play and he wanted to immerse himself, wanted to find this, you know? And so I have a little, a couple of paragraphs here from one of his friends, one of his followers, someone who entered into his order. And the order itself, you know, if you see a Franciscan now, they'll have OFM at the end of their their name. That means the order of friars minor. In Latin, that means the little friars, the little brothers. The whole point of Francis, if you don't know his story, he was born into a wealthy family, a wealthy merchant, renounced all of his wealth, and lived in abject poverty, lived as a homeless man, taking alms from the people and doing the work that he did. And he always saw himself as a little brother. And all of his followers were little brothers. And so this one follower of his, Thomas Solano, was a follower, a friend. He was part of the the OFM. He was also an eyewitness to this first nativity scene. And he wrote about this contemporaneously with Francis. Francis would recall Christ's word through persistent meditation and bring to mind his deeds through the most penetrating consideration. The humility of the incarnation and the charity of the passion occupied his memory particularly to the extent that he wanted to think of hardly anything else. The day of Christmas drew near. The time of great rejoicing came. The brothers were called from their various places. Men and women of that neighborhood prepared with glad hearts according to their means, candles and torches to light up that night. The manger was prepared. The hay had been bought. The ox and ass were led in. There simplicity was honored, poverty was exalted, humility was commended, and Grecia was made, as it were, a new Bethlehem. The night was lighted up like the day, and it delighted men and beasts. The people came and were filled with new joy over the new mystery. The woods rang with the voices of the crowd, and the rocks made answer to their jubilation. The brothers sang, paying their debt of praise to the Lord, and the whole night— resounded with their rejoicing. When Francis came, finding all things prepared, he saw it and was glad. He is dressed in the vestments of the deacon and with full voice sings the holy gospel, a powerful voice, a pleasant voice, a clear voice, a musical voice, inviting all to the highest of gifts. Then he preaches to the people standing around him and pours forth sweet honey about the birth of the poor king and the poor city of Bethlehem. Moreover, burning with excessive love, he often calls Christ the babe from Bethlehem, saying the word Bethlehem in the manner of a bleeding sheep. Bethlehem. (laughs) you got to picture this, right? If you can picture this, what he's doing, he fills his mouth with sound, but even more with sweet affection. He seems to lick his lips whenever he uses the expressions Jesus or babe from Bethlehem, tasting the word on his palate and savoring the sweetness of the word. Francis stands before the manger, filled with heartfelt sighs and overcome with wondrous joy. You know, when he got permission to start his order, he refused to take on holy orders He refused to become a priest or be ordained a priest. He stayed a deacon his whole life. That was another part of his continuing to see life from three feet off the ground, never exalting himself, always staying in that childlike space. It is said that sometimes he would stand on his head just so he could see the world from that perspective. He called himself God's clown, God's juggler, you know, That's that's just the way he approached everything. You see, in these little details, don't you love these intimate little details? The licking of the lips, the bleeding of Bethlehem. It just gives you such insight into his character, who he was, how childlike he remained, how anavim. Francis here is in complete immersion, a complete reflection of God's love, a reflection of God's love especially in the playfulness. We miss this all the time. Jesus was playful. He and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is playful. He's full of humor. Francis, full of humor, full of humility, not afraid to look ridiculous, not afraid to be made a fool of because that's the role that he plays as Anavim, reflecting this complete in-loveness that that is a reflection of who our God is. If you really want to know the nature of our God, look at Francis. Look at Jesus. They are showing us that we have an unassuming God. We have a humble God. Francis is lost in the sensory overload and the power of the moment, and he's brought to tears recognizing Jesus in this reenactment. Now, we get no such details of the Magi, but think of them. Think of who they were. Think of how they were, despite all of their wealth, all of their prestige and power, to have the heart of the Anavim now kneeling before the Christ child. Their reaction must have been much like Francis, I imagine. The joy, the laughter, the licking of lips, the crying, overcome. Sensory overload, the power of the moment coming over them. How about us? What's our reaction? Can we recognize Jesus not only here in a nativity scene? Can we recognize Jesus in our lives, in every moment of our lives, in every person that we meet? Another few paragraphs, this time from a woman whose letters after her name are OSF, which is the third order of St. Francis. She's a nun, and she is contemporary here in our time. But listen to what she writes in the same tradition of Francis. The story of the incarnation is really our story. It is the exact meeting point of God and human beings. We so often think of God as some kind of remote power or superhuman energy that has somehow set this whole creation thing going and then stepped back to see what would happen. It is impossible for God to step back from anything God has chosen to be involved with. At the very first moment of creation, God freely decided to get involved with you and me and with all created being. Absolutely everything God does, God does with free Unconditional, absolute, and irrevocable love. This is very hard for us to understand and accept because we of ourselves do not naturally love this way. Yet every Christmas we celebrate that God came among us as one of us so we could love like God and be like God and share God's own life forever. Francis of Assisi was profoundly moved as he contemplated God's coming among us as a human being in Jesus Christ. This reality filled him with awe. He understood that we human beings are essentially poor, that of ourselves, we actually are nothing. Everything we are and have has been given to us by God in love. We are totally dependent on the God who lovingly and freely created us and who holds us in being. When Francis talked about poverty, this is what he was talking about, the recognition of what we are before God when he thought about this little newborn baby lying in utterly poor circumstances, son of an equally poor mother, it moved Francis to tears that this little human being could be a full manifestation of the God of all creation astounded him and wakened in him the most ardent and grateful love. It made him want to laugh and sing and shout and weep. So that is exactly what he did. Francis was a man who really expressed his emotions. For him, the Gospels came alive and were made present in highly charged dramatic action. Word and deed were as one. To know the story was to become a participant in it, to play a role in it, to live it in such a way that its power became irresistible to others. It's kind of a chicken and egg thing, if you think about it a little bit, right? The Father's love changes us. Actually, the Father's love brings us back to who we really are. We've forgotten who we really are. We've forgotten that we're anavim, that we were born that way. We've created all of these projections and all these illusions around us, but the Father's love changes us and brings us back. But we also need to be changed enough to recognize that love, to recognize the change that is happening, or at least we need to be willing to be immersed, I suppose, like the Magi, like Francis, willing to be wrong, willing to look ridiculous, willing to admit the limits of our knowledge and our power, to suspend what we think we know, to let that power or illusion of power go, the illusion of security go. We must be enough like him, onavim, to see and recognize him. Kind of like it takes one to know one, like that. In everything and in everyone around us, can we recognize our God? Can we recognize our God and see our God coming from a direction we don't expect, in a person we don't like? Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, the magi, Francis, they could all do this. They had common traits that allowed them to do this. Their humility, their childlike purity of heart kept them three feet off the ground, being able to see where God really lives. There's a willingness to set off without a known destination, without any guarantee of success, as we understand that word. Following real-time directions and the changes, you know? Like when you're following your phone, recalculating, recalculating, you know? Following real-time directions, not exactly knowing where we're going, but doing it in faith, doing it in trust, with the ability to Im- ability to immerse in relationships that are present right now with abandon. The Magi set out to find a king, to find a priest, to find a prophet. What they found was a poor, speechless child. The promise of their star was still unformed, absolutely unrecognizable. But their anavim hearts allowed them to see past their expectations, allowed them to surrender and trust what was right before their eyes. We all set out to find our God, but God is always present in the infant. God always presents, still unformed, remember, now and not yet, now, not yet, always unformed. Never do we get full answers to our questions, never do we satisfy the itch in our minds. Are we willing to deal with that? Christmas is the promise of our star. Every year, when that is still unformed, when the promise is still unformed, are we on a veam enough to be able to see that, to be able to see that our God is an unassuming God, a humble God, There's a line that I love from a movie. Actually, it's from James Thurber, his original Walter Mitty. Beautiful things don't ask for attention. I love that line. Truly beautiful things already are complete, whole within themselves. They need nothing, so they ask for nothing. But they give and radiate everything. That is our God. That's how God functions. How do we follow our star then to this child of promise? I want to read one more thing to you. And it's a journal entry that I wrote. It's getting to be a few years ago now. But it was one of those things that stood me up, one of those things that stopped me in my tracks and helped me to see how we can, how others of us can, just in regular daily life. Recognize Jesus, recognize God in our unformed lives. It's a week before Christmas, waiting at a stoplight. I have a front row seat at the crosswalk. Through the passenger window, I catch what must be a father and daughter beginning their walk across the intersection. Moving very slowly, I wonder if they'll get across in time. Both carry cardboard coffee cups in their right hands, but while his free arm swings with each step, I notice hers held stiffly bent against her side. She appears 11 or 12 years old as I collect details, left hand curled cruelly back at the wrist, left foot turned sharply inward, and the limping shuffle it creates, thick glasses and puffy features. It dawns why they move so slowly across my glass screen. Father matches her pace with pack practice graced. Unhurried, vaguely protective, but not hovering either. They went to Starbucks. He bought her coffee, or more likely hot chocolate, amid all those lights and decorations in the store. I wondered how it all appeared to her through those thick glasses, how she must have smiled looking around, up at him, back around. I wondered how it all appeared to him, being forced to walk so slowly to match that shuffling pace for 11 or 12 years for the rest of her life or the rest of his. Perhaps to learn to see life as his daughter saw it, would always see it. When he realized, it, realized he couldn't change her, had she changed him? The hot chocolate and the unhurried, unselfconscious walk in front of all those windshields implied so much. Christmas has a way of bringing vague, submerged feelings to the surface, the way hook and line bring up fish. We find ourselves suddenly grasping, squirming emotions that should have nothing to do with Christmas, with what we think Christmas is supposed to mean, what we remember it used to mean. You see, we imprint the meaning of Christmas through a child's eyes, then suddenly mourn its loss each year through adult eyes. Christmas hasn't changed The possibility of Christmas returns every December. We have changed. We've lost the pace of childhood. I'm thinking maybe Christmas as remembered happens exactly when we stop trying to make it happen. When we stop running faster and faster, trying to catch the stored experience of Christmas. Maybe meaning finally has a chance to catch up and catch us. I can't choose the pace of life around me any more than I can alter the course of a storm. But maybe I can choose my own pace within it. Maybe I can allow myself to shuffle slowly through the crosswalk with a warm cardboard cup in my hand and the sense of a patient father at my side. We have a patient father. We have a father who can see past our unformed promise. That is our life right now. Recognize our beauty in spite of ourselves. Teaching us with unfailing love to do the same everywhere we look and in everything that we do. Of course, we will always find our God as a child. Why do we expect any other form? Every time we meet our God is Christmas morning. The babe is in the manger, the star is in the east, and we are the magi. Let's pray. Father, help us to see you as you are and not as we expect you to be. Help us to let go of everything that is so lofty in our thinking, in our belief system, that it takes us away from the reality of who you are showing yourself to be. Keep us close to the ground, Lord. Help us to realize that with everything that we accomplish, we are still only delivery devices for your grace. We are only conduits through which we can allow your gifts to pour through to others. Help us like your son to understand that we do nothing of our own initiative, that we can only do what we see you doing through us, in us. Help us to cultivate our hearts, our purity of heart in a small and childlike way that allows us to be able to see your kingdom, your love, your grace. And this Christmas allow us to use the images of Christmas to lock down the idea first, but the experience right after of what it means to be on Avim in the modern world how we can be both rich and poor at the same time, how we can have prestige and power but not cling to it so that we can see you in every moment of our lives. Father, thank you. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for everyone who has lived and shown us what it looks like to reflect your real love in our lives. Never let us forget that we can only do any of this because you did it first. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's all stand.